Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta, and today we're going to talk to an old friend. Um, we're welcoming back to the podcast, Michelle Payne. And Michelle is a relatively prolific author, but an excellent speaker who gets out and talks about agriculture. And she gets, uh, she's on now, I think her third book, right, Michelle, third book? It is. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't even welcome you yet, and I'm asking you questions. Um, I'm a pro. Um, Michelle's third book uh, called Food Bullying, How to Avoid Buying BS. And I've had the opportunity to speak with Michelle in person and uh, at meetings with her conferences and always appreciate it. And I'm very glad she can be with me here today. So welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thanks for having me, Kevin, though I don't know about it being a, quote, old, quote, friend <laughs> right no no well you know we've gone back a few years yeah, now you there know. You go. we have indeed i'm delighted to be here and, and glad to be with your listeners again today oh i see what you're saying old modifies friend not you <laughs> <laughs> now we sound like grammarians so never mind well um let's go back right into your latest book and this is the one that's out now um food bullying and it's a it, the concept is something that becomes extremely obvious, I think, to most people who have paid attention to the state of discussion around food or even TV commercials or um, have been shamed to death by folks in their communities for bringing the wrong kind of brownies, you know. But could you please give a good idea about what was the motivation for this and why you call it food bullying? Well, the motivation was 18 years of work in agricultural advocacy and trying to talk about contentious issues such as GMOs, which I know you've done a tremendous amount of work in, but also animal welfare and hormones and antibiotics and, and sustainability and all of those topics that bring so much joy and happiness to our food plate. Um, the ultimate motivation is probably the black and white beautiful Holsteins that I have out in my front yard. And looking at people like my uh, daughter and stepdaughters to make sure that they know how to stand up for what's right. But at the end of the day, uh, it was named food bullying because that is essentially what has happened around food and farming. Unfortunately, a lot of people are disconnected with the source, the science, and the system that's in place around food and farming. And as such, they don't trust it. We all know that if you don't uh, trust something, you're likely to fear it, and so the cycle continues. Bullies prey on fear, and we're at the point of food today where instead of appreciating and celebrating our nutrition, we fear our food. Oh, that was uh, really, you jumped kind of to where I was trying, wanted to go with this, that there's this disconnect that's happening, and when you have a disconnect, it opens up a series of vulnerabilities. Could you kind of... Uh, drill down on that a little bit more. What is the disconnect uh, and how does that leave people vulnerable? 
Well, the disconnect's pretty simple. When was the last time you were on a farm would be the first question that I would ask to your listeners. We all know that 98.5% of the U.S. population and a similar population percentage in Canada do not reside on a farm or ranch. Um, So as such, they're disconnected. And we also know that we're multiple generations removed. So at the first point in the food bullying cycle, there is the disconnect. And then comes the distrust, at which point the fear sets in. And then the bullying happens and it becomes a vicious cycle. As I illustrated in the book, it's it's pretty much uh, circular. And the more misinformation, disinformation and fear mongering that there is out there that's propagated by a wide variety of bullies, uh, including scientists, including farmers, including dietitians, and yes, including food manufacturers. Uh, I think that that we have to, to really take a step back and figure out how we can overcome the food bullying epidemic. Yeah, one thing that um, I always have been a little sensitive to is the word bullying or bully. You know, I don't. I think it almost kind of trivializes or softens what this really is, and what it really is is intimidation and harassment. And how does that you know how does how does uh, intimidation and harassment around your food choices mostly manifest today well it really depends on on who you're talking to and what type of group that you're working with some are certainly more harassing than others so within the food bullying book i outline six different levels that go pretty much from the zealot that really believes that there is only one right way Uh, to a full-on bullying, which may include physical threats, attacks through social media like you've experienced, and being excluded from activities. But in the middle is where, of course, most uh, bullies are. It's the shaming, it's the taunting, it's the evangelizing, which is where a lot of the activists fit, and it's the judging. So if you've ever felt judged because of what's on your plate in a restaurant or the brand that you brought to a a parent's group or what's in your shopping cart, then you likely have experienced bullying. And how has the internet played into this? (laughs) Well, um, (laughs) I did actually take a step back at the beginning of the book and I define bullying because I do think it's important and I'm not trying to trivialize the issue. I respect that bullying is a massive issue, particularly amongst young people. I had some experiences with that myself when I was in junior high, so I get it. But when you look at the formal definition of bullying and then you break it down, there's a a variety of different types of bullying. And what I call them are keyboard cowards. That's cyberbullying. Those are the people that are out there that have a different opinion that try to uh, basically get the energy from your product platform to leverage their own message. Uh, The ones that are out there that are offering flagrant insults that are doing things that are threatening. An example that came to me as many of the stories did in food bullying um, by way of, of my tribe, just by happenstance, I had a German dairy farmer email me to tell me what had happened. And I am directly quoting her. It was a shitstorm as she liked to call it. And she told me what happened. She had posted a video on her Facebook page. So her farm's Facebook page, she posted a video of a kid drinking milk. And the um, vegan activists, I think they were actually animal rights activists, got on her page, as they like to do. And they uh, started threatening the farm. They uh, physically 
threatened them, emotionally threatened them, insulted them, and so forth. And the whole experience is laid out, including the outcome, which is where Agnes uh, decided that she was going to stand up to the bullies and she was going to help other farmers learn from that. Um, so I think it's important that we understand that this is not isolated to the farming community, nor the scientific community or the food community. It's really a far reaching program across the globe or not program, but a problem. Well, that problem that you mentioned, you know, I know in your book, in the last couple chapters, the last parts, it really talks about what you do to solve the problem. But before we get to that, what is there or is there any recourse for somebody who's experiencing food bullying or any kind of bullying with cyberbullying? Is there any real recourse from a law enforcement side? I mean, is there anybody there who's got your back? Well, I'm not that intimately familiar with law enforcement, so I can't speak to that. But the the best recommendation I can give, uh, with the exception of extremism, which again, I know you've experienced, but is I have policies in place personally on my uh, pages and blogs and, and so forth that if somebody starts using profanity, uh, professionally insults me, personally insults me or someone else, or is unprofessional, I basically block them from my page and I refuse to engage. The best policy is to not extend the power of your platform to the activists because that's really what they're after. And then the other piece uh, that I always try to help people remember is that your response is about the fishbowl. It's not necessarily responding to the person who is uh, trying to cyberbully you, but it's about being able to have a positive response so that the people that are watching from the outside uh, have a um, good impression, shall we say, but basically responding in a way so that others can see a more positive side than the bullying. No, that's true. It's the um, taking the high road wins the trust, and that's what it's all about. But um, I kind of was setting you up with that last question um, because I kind of know the answer to it is that the law enforcement law enforcement does nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I know that when I've gone through things, I, we you know I've had my bank account and social security number put online, and there's nothing that anyone can do. There's absolutely nothing. And so you know, you're this is our own issue to solve and to be aware about and to talk about. Um, what are the consequences? I mean, what are the what are the consequences of having this be happening without any kind of real pushback, except for a few people who managed to stand up to it? Well, the consequences is that there are fewer voices that are communicating about science, that are communicating about farming and bringing truth to food. I think we all know that we're going to be called uh, big agriculture, corporate hacks, oh, any other number of things that I won't repeat if we choose to speak up for what I consider to be truth and agriculture. But I always go back to if you know the science, you know the source, or you know the system, then you can have a positive, productive discussion about food. And your truth, Kevin, your choices in food may be entirely different than mine. Um, and I'm okay with that. And I think that's one of the things that we have to allow ourselves in the discussion of, of true critical thinking is to be okay when people make different choices than what we do. That's an interesting point because when we talk about food, we're talking about 
something that's really close to us and something to that really has an interesting role in identity. When you talk about cultures who, you know, well, I, I only like, or, you know, people who come from certain background that, oh, we're taking our traditional, you know, Italian food or traditional Polish food, whatever, that has a lot of weight with a lot of people. And is that really why this is so hard to shift that whether it's vegan or paleo or organic, or whatever, that people develop these almost religious connections to their food choices and feel that it's morally correct, superior, and that they need to impose that on other people. Is that also a big part of this? Well, the way I broke it down, as you know, from reading the book is taking a look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if you're like me and you're not familiar, that starts out with physiological needs at the bottom, followed by safety, belonging, esteem, and then self-actualization is at the top. We live in a very privileged society, a society in which one food is positioned as superior to another food in the interest of profits. That's what it boils down to. But if you go back from a psychological standpoint, from a purely human need standpoint, at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, is this food safe and is it nourishing me? Because if those two things are in place, then those are our most basic needs, right? But where the bullying typically happens is at the belong and esteeming. That's where people are looking for the love, the affection, being a part of a group, the affirmation. Uh, that's where they see food as a social movement. And frankly, that's where the bullies are targeting us through prestige, affirmation, authority, tradition, altruism, activism, and such. So that gets a little down in the weeds, but it really comes down to the way our brains work and whether we choose to allow the rational writer of the part of your brain to control the emotional elephant uh, part of the brain, which is an analogy that I use frequently throughout the book to try to illustrate the viewpoint that our brains are being manipulated when we make eating choices. And what you may believe is superior is actually BS, which is bull speak. <laughs> well, I, I, and I like this a lot. I really appreciated the Maslow's hierarchy of needs breakdown because it shows that, you know, like you mentioned, there's the sustenance and nutrition angle that we get from food. And that's what we really should be shooting for here. But how now the, the fact that that's the basis of the pyramid that there are the other higher orders of our personal needs that can be satisfied by connecting to that base through this, you know, circuitous messaging is really interesting way to lay that out. And how are some of the ways that that is been manipulated when you're talking about the affirmations and the belonging, how are some ways that, you know, maybe you can point to some uh, popular commercials or products that really demonstrate that kind of uh, that fulfilling a sense of belonging based on food. So as an example, um, you're in a, I'm just going to say a mom group. Um, you're in a mom group and you are told that you cannot bring Capri Suns because they may contain HFCS. You're told that you can't bring homemade goods because you don't choose to um, shop organically. And uh, you can't bring snacks because you don't have whole foods on the bag. Uh, that's an example of forced into group thinking and, and that whole prestige affirmation authority. There's other examples I think that we can point to 
a pretty poor example of Chipotle when it comes to food safety and what really matters. Um, because it, it's fascinating to me that people are more worried about the social statement of their food than the safety of their food. And I think that really speaks to the fact that we do have an incredibly safe food system with amazing science, if people would just understand that. But instead, sometimes they're making choices about, about brands. Um, and of course, you know, we have the folks from the Humane Society of the United States that are out there making claims around housing that have forced various brands into making corporate decisions about that um, in order to do the quote, right, unquote, thing in their consumers' eyes. So there's no shortage of examples out there. Uh, the thing that I would encourage you all to remember is that if you can answer the question, does this food provide me nourishment? And is this food safe? And I don't mean perceived safe. I mean, is this food safe for my body to take? Not by label, but by science. Because we have to remember that if the labels lack measure, they lack meaning. And I'm sure that all of the scientists out there listening can certainly appreciate that. No, that's an excellent point. And it's something that, you know, certainly I've, you know, screamed from the highest mountain for the last years is that when we start maligning perfectly good food it affects a lot of people and it doesn't become a choice of the affluent it becomes something that penetrates um, into the poorest reaches of the world because if, if and, I've, and I had someone in Uganda once tell me if it's not good enough for the EU why is it good enough for me so this kind of bullying has those kinds of reaching consequences and what are some other guidelines that you use in order to spot bull speak well, before we go to the bull speak, I just want to speak to that last point because an unintended mm -hmm. consequence of food bullying, or sometimes an intended consequence, unfortunately, is here in the States and in Canada, and that's people that can no longer afford food. I had a lady on our food bullying podcast a couple of weeks ago talk about how she was homeless when she had a son that was a toddler, and she talked about the fact that these uh the legislative initiatives, the ballot initiatives, and so forth, regulations around uh, broiler housing, or excuse me, chicken housing for eggs, has increased, by science, clearly measured, has increased egg prices. So when we look at food bullying, it's not just the, the, oh, this makes you feel bad. It's the fact that there's some really horrible consequences for people out there. And the way that we are choosing to buy our food unintentionally is resulting in increased prices and lack of availability for people who can't afford it. No, that's an excellent point. And I talk about that all the time. And even people who maybe have marginal incomes where they're, you know, in a, in a position where they can't necessarily afford something that's 25% more or twice the price or whatever, look at something like the dirty dozen. Mm -hmm. And how does that play a role in food bullying and even food shaming, especially with respect to, to uh, and how could it affect somebody who's on kind of a budget with respect towards fruits and vegetables? Well, right. And you had asked about bull speak earlier, and it's a great example. Their dirty dozen is filled with as much bull speak as you can because the, the science uh, is not equitable 
to the same measurements that are used by EPA, FDA, USDA when it comes to pesticide residue. And we could get into the science or we could talk about the outcomes of the bull speak. The outcomes of the bull speak clearly are proven that people who live in need are afraid to buy produce and therefore aren't eating as many fruits and vegetables because they think that they're going to harm their family if they can't afford to buy organic. And I am not against organic fruits and vegetables, to be clear, but when it comes down to someone being able to feed their family nutritious food and have the adequate nourishment with healthy ingredients, it's not about a dirty dozen list. It's about nutrition. It's about safety, and it's about truth. And the truth is, is that all food has chemicals in it, folks. We know this from a scientific standpoint. Um, and there is nothing wrong with the way that those foods are grown, regardless of what label is slapped on them. Well, excellent point. So we're speaking with Michelle Payne. Uh, she's a blogger and a podcaster and a speaker, prolific speaker and author of several books. Uh, we're talking about food bullying, her, the third of her trilogy thus far. <laughs> you, have a, you have a trilogy now. No one's ever said that, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Well, there you go. Leave it to me, right? Uh, we're on the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin with an important message from the Talking Biotech Podcast. Now, the university continues to receive harassment and FOIA requests regarding what I do and why I do it and who I communicate with to do it. Recently, it's been brought up again that the Talking Biotech Podcast is somehow connected to the University of Florida. Now, why they make those allegations, I don't know. Apparently, they feel that there's some funding that's coming to the university that must be funding this high-quality <laughs> production and paying significant dividends to the host to apparently spread misinformation about science. Hmm. The funny part is, I did suggest to the university that they make this an officially sanctioned a podcast that would go hand in hand with other university outreach. But the deans declined. They said that they didn't need this podcast as part of their portfolio, which is fun. So I continued to do this at home. I do it on my own time and do the interviews on my own equipment, my own computer. This is 100% me. It's something I enjoy in my spare time. Like some guys build remote control airplanes, some guys collect Star Wars figurines. <laughs> Some guys, you know, work on cars. I whatever. This is what I like to do in my spare time. That it's so important to me to communicate science that it doesn't stop when I leave the lab. I really want you to understand what this technology is and isn't and feel more comfortable when you try to communicate this with others. It's extremely important for us to do that effectively. Because if we're going to see technology go from innovation to application, it's going to require good communication. Thank you for listening, and thank you for continuing to share this podcast with others. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Michelle Payne, author of Food Bullying, the third installment of the Tr trilogy <laughs> i almost said triad the uh, trilogy of books on food and farming and um where can they find your book michelle 
Food Bowling is available across major bookstores such as Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million, Amazon, so forth and so on, Chapters Indigo if you're up in Canada. Uh, you can also, if you want an author signed version, you can order it at causematters.com. And since it just released, it should be widely available. If for some reason it's not, let me know. But I was super excited, Kevin, because it went to number one bestseller when the ebook released back in August. So I'm glad to have the print book in everyone's hands. That's great. And you mean Amazon, the online retailer, not the rainforest. So just yes. to be clear. Thank uh, you. Yeah, we've had people... We've had people complain. They, you know, oh. we went to Brazil and they couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> well, one of the things that we were talking about, um, or that was in the book, and um, maybe you could touch on, is this idea of um, big and factory and industrial. Those three words are used to describe and are keywords in the food bullying concept. And for me, it drives me crazy because everybody who's complaining about factory farms and industrial food, they're thrilled about their uh, factory iPhone and their factory car and their industrial job. So why is it that, that food is um, considered a little differently with more of a want for a small and boutique feel where people don't care about that with other aspects of their lives? Well, it's an interesting topic to look at, and I covered it in section two of the book um, where we talked about fairy tales and folklore because it seems as though it's Jack or the giant or David versus Goliath. And here's a reality check. In order to meet the food needs that we have across North America, it takes all sizes and shapes of agriculture. And yes, that means that we have farms with 10,000 acres and we have farms with thousands of head of dairy cattle. And we have farms that farm a couple hundred acres organically. And we have people who raise a few head of beef and sell them to our neighbors. And the reality is, is that big is not bad and small is not bucolic. The reality is, is that it takes all types of farms to be able to meet the need and that at the end of the day, I believe it's about 96% of the U.S. farms are still family owned. And it's the values of the family that define a farm, not the size. And Kevin, I'm with you. I, I get a little frustrated as well because inevitably when I post pictures of our dairy cattle and make comments about how they're cared for, uh, particularly after the whole uh, Fair Oaks animal rights activist invasion. Um, people said, well, you, took, you take good care of them because you're a small farm. No, we take good care of them because that's the right thing to do. And I know very few farmers around the world who do not share that sentiment. So it's a bit of a challenge, I think, for all of us to be able to do a better job of agriculture, of really providing context about why farms are the size they are and why they farm the way they do. And so why do some big players get a free pass? So Whole Foods is an awfully big corporation. I mean, now they're owned by Amazon. They're the biggest corporation in the world, the bookseller, not the rainforest. And how how is it that they get a free pass or or, or Gary Hirschberg, um, you know, uh, whatever, I can't remember the name of his company now. They were bought for billions of dollars. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I talked about Whole Foods in the book. And to be clear, I'm not anti-Whole Foods. I choose not to shop there because I don't see the difference. 
um, and the quality of products, and I don't have that kind of income. Whole Foods, at the end of the day, is a highly profitable business, and particularly now that Amazon, not the rainforest, um, has a hold of them, it will be intriguing to see where it goes. I don't know why they get a free pass, but the story that's been told about Whole Foods is clearly extraordinarily effective. So I guess I would turn that on its ear and I would ask your audience, how can you do the same? How can you make science and agriculture and food technology and intellectual property and those sorts of things be as attractive of a story as what Whole Foods has created? Because at the end of the book, what I challenge people to do is elevate the food conversation and to build your own food story. And I don't know about for you, Kevin, but my story has changed somewhat over the years because when I was a little girl, I thought the entire story of food resided in our barn and our beautiful black and white cows and that the, the sunset and the moon rose on our farm. And since that time, I've had the opportunity to travel the world and see agriculture from an incredibly diverse viewpoint and to meet the people involved. But I've also in recent years gotten to know dietitians and food scientists and experts around the plate that bring their own perspective. And my food story has grown as a result of it. I've realized that my own uh, personal, environmental, social, ethical, and nutrition standards are the reason why I am able to stand very firm on choice in both the farm and in food. Yeah, but see, this is the same thing that works against us a little bit. And that, you know, you say like your values and what you know is what allows you to stand firm on that. And someone who has very different values and background, um, you know, maybe grew up in the city and just wants to go to Whole Foods and buy organic produce. Maybe they dig in and feel the same way because the information they have is um, telling them, you know, their reality. So how do we break through? And how do we create change in that, especially when the people who are being manipulated by food bullying are the folks in the middle who don't know? And they listen to that person. They listen to you. How, how do we have a more compelling message? I think we have to have a more compelling message by appealing to emotions rather than dumping data. I mean, we've had that discussion over and over again ad nauseum that we can't just puke science on people's shoes and dump data. No offense to all of you who research. I know it. I love it. I honor it. But it doesn't work in building a food story. First, you have to gain trust and you gain trust through the heart. And I would probably argue that it's not necessarily a difference in values, but it's a what we have to develop is our own standards. And I really challenge uh, the readers to identify what their own health, ethical, environmental, and nutrition standards are, their social standard rather. Because if you know your standards, then you can measure every food claim, the 200,000 plus that are in an average grocery store, you can measure every food claim against those standards. Um, so to me, it's about being able to have a system in place and carefully developing your own food story over time. But if you don't have time uh, to do that, the quick answer is to know the source, in other words, where your food came from, or know the science, the science behind why the food is safe and nutritious. And then the third is know the source or know the system, which is brings in all the regulatory agencies and, and, and such, which aren't perfect, but it's what we have and what we have to work with. So again, if your listeners could know where your food comes from, 
know the science behind it, know the system that's in place to protect the safety. One of those, then you can typically more easily overcome bullying. Now, if you don't mind, can I hold your hair back while you puke some science for me? There's some stuff I learned from the book that, cause you do have some good um, factual information in here. That's quite compelling yeah. and helps the author or the reader helps the reader um, talk about some of the issues in food bullying. And one of the parts that was really compelling, I've heard you speak on as well as read about in the book is the issue of animal hormones. And so what can you tell me about how we should be communicating that topic when we're talking about food bullies, when we're talking about uh, poultry or beef? Those are two areas that we really need some clarity. And I learned a bunch from by reading the books. So thank you for that. Well, thanks. I appreciate hearing that. So here's the deal. And this is I will illustrate how I talk about um, hormones and chickens as an example, because that's a fairly quick one. Um, most of my research shows that people think that chickens have big breasts because they've been popped full of hormones. So they have Dolly Parton breasts because of hormones. Uh, we all know in agriculture that that is not factual. It, in fact, is illegal, uh, and there aren't any hormones available to give chickens. Chickens have larger breasts because of genetics. It's a really cool story of selective breeding, as most genetic stories are. Uh, so there's no hormones that are happening in chicken breasts. But I think it's really important to note, and this is usually how I start the conversation when I do it effectively, is, so how do you feel about hormones? And as a woman, I can get away with that. As a guy, Kevin, you might get slapped if you did that. But <laughs> I think it, it's a way to help people see that we're all comprised of hormones. Hormones are the chemical messengers of life. If you boil it down, and I'm sure that if you're uh, specialized in hormones, you probably hate that description, but hormones are the chemical messengers of life. They're required for life. They carry all sorts of great things for us. So the maple syrup that you put on your pancakes, you could call that hormone sap because it's from a tree. Kale, supposedly a superfood, is also filled with hormones. Uh, basically, one of the only foods that we eat that does not have hormones in it is salt. So there's lots of interesting stories that you can tell about that. And um, I have to talk about milk just a little bit, if you'll allow me, because I'm a dairy person. Go for it. Many people like to say that their um, children are developing early because of hormones either in food or specifically in milk. Science pretty clearly shows that when you look at um, development is obviously associated with puberty and people uh, go through puberty to prepare their body for pregnancy. That happens faster the more calories you consume. Clearly we have an obesity epidemic in this country, particularly amongst children. So the body with the higher caloric intake is preparing its, itself for pregnancy faster. It's not because of hormones in milk or in food. And that is proven science. It's in one of the 88 citations in food bowling. It's also in food truths from uh, farm to table in extensive detail. And then since you asked about beef, I'll cover that real quickly. Um, beef naturally has hormones in it. And there are some beef producers who choose to implant an Advil size caplet in the ear of an animal because the ear never goes into processing for your reference, follows very specific protocol and the outcome is that that meat has negligible 
um, negatively more levels of hormones. In other words, there's not hardly any more estrogen in those. It's, it's equivalent when you think about hormone therapy that so many men and women are on today. Um, and you consider the fact that steers are castrated males, so they no longer have their reproductive hormones. It's basically replacing those, and it allows for a product to be grown more sustainably because the muscle is laid down faster. That's a very high-level explanation. Um, but at the end of the day, the hormones in food, if you believe in science, you have to believe that the hormones in food are not necessarily causing you detrimental effect. Well, that was really an important part for me to read in the book was, you know, that I didn't realize that it was all about conversion in what were castrated male bulls, that when you have a steer, it doesn't have a source of hormones anymore, and it's going to change the way it converts feed. And so it's a question of efficiency. It, well, it absolutely is. And it, I think it's really interesting that society-wide people rely on hormones for a variety of issues. And I'm not judging anyone to be clear, but yet I think the, the problem is, is that we have this disinformation stuck in our brain uh, that alludes to men pumping steroids. And when you hear that an animal is given some sort of hormone, that's the illusion that comes up. I actually talked about it in the book a little bit. And that's simply not true. I mean, that those hormones have been measured to the most precise levels. And you would be shocked to know that some of your plants, i.e. cabbage, broccoli, soybeans, have far greater levels of estradiols in them than meat does. That's a really great point too. You know, the, and what are some of the other really good examples? You use hormones here. But what are some of the other uh, package labels that we should be alerted to or that we might recognize as, as bull speak? Oh, the bull speak labels that really set me off are things like ethical. I, I want to know how you raise your food more ethically than me, because that is a crap statement. And that's the nicest thing that I can say about that. But uh, also labels like family farm. I mean, is that defined? Is it distinguishable? Is it is it meaningful? Is it measurable? Uh, natural. I especially love the all-natural claim. There is no reason why you can't slap an all-natural claim on a bag of Cheetos. You know, the reality is, is that you can make that claim anywhere you want to. Uh, the cleansing, the whole uh, types of foods, the the non-GMO label sets me off because we all know, and I know you've discussed, discussed this ad nauseum, Kevin, but we all know that there's a limited number of foods that actually have been bioengineered. Um, I'm very glad that that bioengineering label is going to be required on foods by 2022. I talk about it in food bullying, but the non-GMO label is a money-making scam, um, in my opinion and research. And it's not doing anyone any favors in uh, deteriorating fear in food. It's actually building food fear and it's bullying. So other BS labels are clean and local. Again, is it definable? Is it distinguishable? Is it measurable? Um, because if it's not measurable, then it lacks meaning. And it's, it was really interesting to me, Kevin. I, I went through hundreds and hundreds of pages of labeling information trying to figure out in a way that I could explain it to people, FDA information in particular. And what I discovered was that it was almost impossible to explain it to people, but also that FDA 
uh, for years now has been after food manufacturers to clean up the label claims. Hasn't happened yet. Really wish it would. <laughs> I, I bought a loaf of bread this week that had a label on it that said, nonsense free. <laughs> oh, I love it. You should send me a picture. I will. I'll send you a picture. The beauty of that one is it's a win-win because yeah. it's interpreted by people who don't want, you know, who, who fall into the hormone thing and all that. Oh, well, it doesn't obviously doesn't have hormones and GMOs in it. And then I look at it and go, this label is telling me that they're not going to put that junk on the label. <laughs> so, you know, my hat's off to the Arnold Bread Company. I think that was them. But that was pretty cool. It is a really interesting angle on that. Um, but aside from being aware of it, what are things people can do to protect themselves and their families from food bullying? Well, again, it gets back to knowing your health, ethical, environmental, and social standards. If you can define those, you can measure all label claims against those. So for example, I know that this is not shared by everyone, but I believe that we have an ethical responsibility to feed the world. I'm a farm girl through and through. I was raised to believe that. I still believe that today. And I see people working their tails off on farms and losing money to feed the world. So that's a standard when I see someone bully others that result in folks doing without food. I'm not okay with that. Um, so the standards are a great way to be able to measure claims. But the a real simple one is to use why as a fear filter. So when you're sitting there at a restaurant menu and you notice that they have spelled out, for example, the price of food, um, that's done because of neuromarketing, just a little FYI. Step back and say, why are they doing that? Why is this claim being made? Why does something that only has corn in it have a gluten-free label on it? Why does this marketing say that my chicken is antibiotic-free when, in fact, all USDA-approved meats are antibiotic-free? So the why can be a fear filter, and I think it would probably reduce a lot of confusion, um, reduce the bullying, because you would remove some of the fear. Well, all this has been really great. It's been uh, it was nice to read your book. It was, uh, I kind of hear your voice as I look at the words because I, you know, have, have done some things with you here, some speaking and things with you in the past. Um, it was really, 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 really nice. So if people want to find a copy of this, where can they go? Well, you can get food bullying at any fine bookstore near you. <laughs> you can also order it online. Amazon, the bookseller, uh, Barnes & Noble, Chapters Indigo, Books A Million, and the like. You can also get an author signed copy, if you so wish, at causematters.com. And that is where my food bullying podcast resides. I'm always delighted to connect with folks in the science and uh, food and farming communities. So please follow me on social media. Uh, send me a shout out so I know who you are. My handle is at M Payne Speakers. So that's M as in Michelle, P A Y N S P E A K E R. And I'm always delighted to connect and learn um, and really want to do a call out to my community who brought food bullying to life through some pretty compelling stories and case studies. I don't write books because I particularly need my name on another cover. My hope is, is to leave a legacy of truth about food and farming and science day for others to be able to use. Well, that's really beautiful, Michelle. Yeah, and it is really true. It's um, 
a legacy that maybe in our lifetimes we'll be able to look back on and say, look at how this change began. And it's really waking people up to the idea that we are being manipulated at certain levels using intimidation and harassment, um, you know, the basis of bullying to alter our food decisions. So, you know, thank you so much for joining me today. And, you know, best wishes to you going forward on this. And I, I hope you sell a billion copies. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't think it'll be a billion, but I appreciate anyone who picks up a copy. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Michelle. And thank you very much to the listener. You know, thank you again. You know, it's great to see the numbers just continue to go up and up on the podcast. And it really is the high point of my week to spend time with you. Thank you so much for listening. Share some information with people about food and food bullying. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.